text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 16, 17, and 18. There's an outline in the bulletin if that helps you follow along. Beloved, hear the word of the Lord. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Write your word on our heart, Lord, that we might find it sweet, your love better than life itself, and become more and more a rejoicing, thanking, and praying people for Christ's sake. Amen. This is one of those Bible texts you read... And if you're letting it deal honestly with you, you say, really? Pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, rejoice always. Do you know anybody who lives like this? Do you feel the weight, the responsibility, the height of what is being called for here? Come on, you look at that and you go, come on. But here it is. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So let's ask these questions and try to tease out uh, the beauty of this text for you. Number one, why is this God's will for you? Paul explicitly says, praying without ceasing, rejoicing, thanking is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, the simplest answer is because he loves you. And everything God commands is good for you. He wants what's best for you. But when we come to the phrase, the will of God, there are a number of biblical nuances to distinguish. Let me just distinguish two for you. Oftentimes you hear the word, the will of God, and you think of his plans for you. But also, I'm going to tease this out for you. Also, when we hear the will of God, we think of his precepts, his law, his word, his commands. So the will of God for you is not just his plans Uh, Does he want me to take this job? What church should I go to? Should we move, dear, to a new neighborhood? Should I marry that person? His plans. And those are good questions to ask. People that love Jesus want to be moving in the pattern of Jesus for their lives. No doubt our Father delights to give us good things. I was reading in my devotions this week, Psalm 81, verse 16. He would feed you with the finest of wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. That's our God. He loves to fulfill good plans for his children. And if you think that way, be encouraged. It means you want what God wants. But, so the will of God, his plans, but then you have the will of God, his precepts. What God commands you to do, what he wants you to do, his law, following him, obeying him. And what we know about his precepts is they're good for you. You can never hurt your soul obeying God. Isn't it better to have a God who tells us how we should live than being our own moral compass? You know, if if it was left to me to be my own moral compass, it's really hard to imagine I wouldn't consistently make selfish decisions. 
Or even worse, having people tell you what you're supposed to do who don't necessarily have your best interest in mind. Why does God have the prerogative to tell you how to live, to tell you what his will is for your life? Why? He made you. He loves you. He wants the best for you. He's the only person who can tell you what is good for you. And I guess, guess my point is, when you are on that trajectory saying, God, what do you want me to do because you love me? What is your prescribed lawful will? You'll actually make good decisions when it comes to plans. See, God doesn't want you tyrannized. Oh, I get tyrannized, like, which car on the lot do I, I do all my research, I come down to, I want this car, do I take the white one or the red one, I don't want to get a car that's a lemon, I could be the guy get, that gets tyrannized over those kind of decisions. God doesn't want me making decisions like that. He saves us from that. Think about how Psalm 37 verse 4 saves us from that. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Priority number one. Find Jesus, your heart's greatest affection. Delight in him. Worship him. Savor him. Be intoxicated with his love and his glory. Your heart desires will flow out of that. What might Paul be safeguarding by putting these verses here in chapter 5? Well, he's already stipulated two things that are the will of God for you in the preceding verses. One, esteem highly and love your leaders. We're called by God to live gracefully, gratefully before our church leaders. He's just said that a couple verses earlier. And then he said to be lavish in the way you love one another. And you might conclude, that could be really hard. And Paul then springs you into what? A lifestyle of prayer. Of course he knows that's hard. But it's the praying heart, the praying spirit, the rejoicing, thanking heart that looks at those commands of God and says, yes, I can concur. That is what brings honor to the Lord and to the church, doing those things. Number two, how how do we bring this about in our lives? Pray without ceasing, rejoice always, and everything give thanks. How do these commands relate or connect to each other? I want you to think of these these three things. Things. If you have three things, call it things. Think of them as three different colored roses. One, rejoicing, red. Two, praying, yellow. Three, giving thanks, pink. They are three blossoms from one root. Three attitudes from one heart. Three expressions of one lifestyle. And just as you don't get oranges or apples from a thorn bush, you can't get these fruits from any old heart. They're actually the fruit, if you, if you 
go out into the garden of your life and you see these three flowers rejoicing, giving thanks, praying without ceasing, and you get down to the soil, you strip away what's at the root, you'll find a heart that's in the grip of the love of Jesus. You'll find a soul that's been washed in the grace and the blood of Christ. That's the heart that produces these things. See, what has Paul already shown you earlier in the chapter in verses 9 and 10? Look at it. Because without this, without standing in awe of this fact, these fruits won't blossom in our lives. Paul writes, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make any difference to my heart? Does that cause me to stand in awe of God? Does that just kind of shut my mouth and go, take my breath away, stunning When that reality is gripping my heart, these are the fruits that will come, and really not until. Let me put it this way. When you can say, I was so unable to save myself. I was so incapable of making my life acceptable to God. I was so under condemnation and guilt and slavery to sin. I was so self-centered, so ungrateful, so proud, so tyrannized by every trial. But now, by the gospel, I'm free, I'm accepted. I'll never face my sins apart from Jesus. I have an advocate who's my defense attorney, one who's more committed to my welfare than I am, one who has promised to supply me with everything I need to live before him, one who guarantees my place in paradise, one who has perfect sovereign control over the details of my life, one who wants me to depend on him and who himself is thoroughly dependable, then these fruits will be evident in your life. Does that make sense? Like, don't try these apart from a heart that's saturated with the gospel. Third question, what do these prayers portray? Well, they portray, as I've been saying, a lifestyle that's coming from a root. And I used Psalm 116 earlier in the service because I think this is one psalm that captures it. Look at the first two verses that Rock read for us earlier. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he has turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. There's a a lifestyle of prayer. What's it in response to? Well, specifically answered prayer, but more broadly, the way the word of God reasons is that when you experience God the way he has revealed himself, in other words, you say, I have found God to be merciful, patient, understanding, sovereign, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, intensely interested in my welfare, this is a God who has turned his ear to me, then what will you do? You will call on him as long as you live. You argue from who God is to the most logical, reasonable response. It's, so Paul's advocating a lifestyle of constant communication with God. Your loved one calls you on the phone. You pick up the phone, you're talking, you're talking, and all of a sudden there's something burning in the oven. What do you have to do? And nowadays with cell phones, I can't do this. Remember the, 
Some of you kids never seen these phones. There used to be phones you could put on your shoulder like this, and you could keep doing something. That doesn't exist anymore, not for me. My head and shoulder are too far apart. You put the cell phone down. You fix what's coming in. Are you still there? God will never say, I'm not here. God will never hang up. Jesus has opened constant communication with our Father in prayer. And even more, you'll get to the point in your life where you're so overcome with God's blessings, what can I do? How can I live? How can I respond for the wealth of the grace you've lavished in my life? And this psalm goes on to say this in verse 12 and 13. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Is that a good question? You ever ask that question? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? Well, that presupposes you see the benefits of the Lord in your life. And your heart is so moved by that, you want to respond. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What do you think the answer is? The answer is keep praying. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I mean, literally, in a few minutes, this cup of salvation, am I going to get in trouble audio if I come up here? This cup of salvation will be lifted up. And in response to the benefits of God to you, drink it. Believe the promise of the gospel. Say, Jesus, your precious blood was shed for me. I am clean. I will forever believe that. Lift up the cup. Drink it in faith. And then the psalmist says, I'll call on the Lord. I'll keep praying. How do I thank God for his goodness to me? Pray. All kinds of prayers. Pray, pray, pray. What an enormous privilege to commune with God, to just talk to him all day long. Life is a, to be human is to have a running conversation with God. Parents, can you imagine you couldn't talk to your kids or somebody did really, something really wonderful for you? You couldn't say thank you? Something really important to communicate, really important, and you couldn't communicate? <laughs> it, to be human is to pray to our precious Father. Why does he love your prayers? Why does the book of Revelation say that the prayers of the saints are like incense to God? That means, that means he's just pleased with them. Why? Number one, he loves to be dependent upon you. You're expressing your dependence upon him. Number two, he loves to be in communion with his three children. And number three, he loves to hear the voice of his son. See, ultimately, all of our prayers are funneled, are channeled through Jesus, our high priest. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for his people. The only reason, ultimately, our prayers get to God, our prayers make any sense to God, is Jesus. Some of you know my son Luke was in uh, Normandy for D-Day. He jumped out of a uh, World War II airplane and safely landed, praise God. Many of you asked, we're so grateful. Um, uh, a German journalist found him and wrote a story on him. And somebody sent us the link. I didn't understand a word of it. It was in German. So my daughter found this program, pushed a button, and German was turned to English. Oh, I can read with the German... Jesus takes your prayers, gobbledygook, and makes them perfect in the ears of his Father. 
And Romans 8 says that we, we, we don't know how to pray. The Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. We have a high priest who makes sure those prayers are intelligible and heard by our Father. Fourth question. What do these types of prayers save you from? What do they save you from? Paul admits that you have trouble from without and from within. So let's, let's unleash these three prayers into our hearts. In other words, here's a lifestyle of rejoicing, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances. Okay, so, so look, at, look at those three things, and do you see withering flowers? They're kind of faint, they're kind of droopy. You know, being away from our home in Virginia, we miss the azaleas. So we, we drive back in, there's our azaleas. Oh, they're, we're pa- they're past. Isn't that what we say in the springtime? They're past. So look at these graces in your life. Well, rejoicing, droopy, past. Giving thanks always. Uh, praying without ceasing. Unleash them into your heart. Find out why you're not thankful, you're not praiseful, you're not a prayerful person. Find out why. Say, go into my heart and do your work. And what these three tend to find is the opposite. For example, I'm not grateful. Go, go find what's going on in my heart. And what I see there is grumbling, a critical spirit, discontent, coveting. Okay. That's good to know because all of that stuff's bad for me. It's bad for my relationships. So those things are in my heart. The fruit is I'm not being grateful, but the organic problem is I am not availing myself of the riches of what I have in Christ. He's the only hope for those things. And there's some practical things you can do. I was reading an article recently on marriage, and I think the author said there's a study shown that couples who choose to be thankful for their spouse's attributes and give praise for things rather than criticism tend to have better marriages. In other words, I'll give my wife a whole lot of negative things to focus on. If she chooses to focus on those few things that are positive about me, that's going to help the relationship. Where are you putting your focus in your relationships? Stay focused on what's wrong? No wonder you're bitter, you're critical, you're discontent. Desire what God's given you, you might get the fruit of thankfulness. Unleash prayerfulness into your soul. What does it uncover? In other words, that flower's withering. I'm not a very prayerful person. What's that uncover in your soul? Self-sufficiency, self-pity, self-reliance, Right? The fruit of that in my soul is I'm really not a praying person. What's the organic failure? I'm acting like an orphan. I'm acting like I'm all I have in this world. I'm not living like God, almighty God, is my father. I'm living like an orphan. And that's a lie. Holy Spirit, Come and change the very disposition, the demeanor of my heart. Let me embrace what it means to be a son of God. And out of that will likely come the fruit of prayerfulness.
How about unleashing rejoicing into your soul? What's that find? No doubt I have forgotten who God is. <laughs> People who recognize who God is can't help but worship. You can't help but worship him. And that might mean that there is a substitute God fueling my motives, my desires, my ambitions. If I'm not rejoicing, that flower is withering. Let it unleash it into your heart. And what you might find there is you are trying to find life from the created, not the creator. What can save you from that? The word of God. Say, God, show me yourself. Word of God, expose these things. Word of God, minister grace, minister truth, minister life to me. And there's also a means of grace that's very powerful to bring God more real into your existence, and that is the grace of singing, something this congregation does very well. Question five, last question. How do you practice these prayers? I want you to imagine you're in one of those big family camping tents. You know what I mean? You can roll out a lot of sleeping bags. There's room for your supplies and everything. You're in a big tent. And you're sitting in the middle and the pole comes down. And the tent falls on you. What can you see? Not much. You basically can see as far as you can stick out your hand and, and lift the nylon tent up, right? So what's your instinct? What's, what's your natural instinct? Get the pole, put the tent back up. In other words, your instinct is to access that which helps you see. Access immediately that which helps you function. Access that, the temple, which helps you make sense out of everything and you gain assurance that everything is under control. That's prayer. Prayer is what enables us to see, to know what our resources are, and that's why we rejoice, and we give thanks, and we keep talking to God. Now, sometimes you put up the temple, the light is so dim in the tent, in the tent you can't see what's going on over there, but you know the God who has everything under control, and this God is sovereign, and he is good. But sometimes we don't always see what he's doing in, in, in the corners of our lives. Small example. I'm driving back to Virginia late at night. I'm in the middle of nowhere. The light turns red. There's no cars waiting in the other street. The light turns red. I'm like, Argh! do I really believe in the sovereignty of God at that moment? This is the question my dear wife asks me. Do I believe God is sovereign or not? He is sovereign over red lights. So I can grumble and complain or I can say, thank you. You may be protecting me from danger down the road that caused me to stop at this moment. Small example. Here's a larger example. September of 1999, we were in our house in Fort Worth, and we looked out the kitchen window, and there were the police helicopters swarming in the air. We turned on the TV a couple of miles from our house. It was Wedgwood Baptist Church. Some of you remember a deranged gun, gunman went in at 7 p.m. in a sea at the pole event and he started shooting people. He blew up a pipe bomb. Seven were injured. Seven were killed. My son was contemplating going to that event with a group of his friends and obviously he didn't go. Wedgwood Baptist Church. Al Meredith is the pastor. He's a Reformed Baptist. What 
did it say on the church's webpage the next morning? Click on it. God is on his throne. That is the ability to not see into the dark corners of the tent, but believe in the goodness and sovereignty of the God who holds it up. Now, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, is that the only way we respond in circumstances? No. Already in the epistle, chapter 4, he talks about believers who are grieving the death of a loved one. We grieve. He himself has admitted in chapter 2 and 3 his angst over the welfare of the church because he wasn't getting word what was going on. We actually have specific songs in the Christian songbook, the Psalter, that are called laments. They are distinctly full of sorrow and crying out and wondering and wrestling with God. So rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks aren't the only ways we respond in our circumstances. But when you push up the pole and you let the word of God and the doctrine of God allow you to see what should the result be. Peace. Someone once said, joy is peace dancing. Peace is joy resting. Both are the fruit of living out the implications of your faith. So that with a sense of the greatness of your spiritual resources, that's what you're seeing when you get the tent pole up. No circumstances can shake you. Look at the text from 2 Corinthians that I provided to you in the bulletin. A great example from Paul. Seemingly full of paradoxes. Look at this. Giving no cause for offense in anything in his apostleship so that the ministry would not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments. Stop, God, you're not in control. No. In labors, sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not yet put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing all things. I think Paul's living out the text that he wrote to the Thessalonians. There's never a time not ultimately to worship, pray, give thanks. And incidentally, notice it's give thanks in all circumstances, not for. We're not expected to give thanks for things God himself hates. Evil calamity, and the like. But when we give thanks to him, where do our hearts ultimately focus? On him. So therefore, the times you feel like praying are too precious to pass up, so pray. The times you don't feel like praying are too precarious to pass through, 
So pray. We become people that are always praying. And finally, we consider the cost of the tent pole itself. The Christian gospel tells us that when we, the tent falls on us, we are sorrowful, we're selfish, we're focused, and we need to make sense of things, and we stick that tent pole up. That pole is nothing less than what, beloved? The cross of Jesus. It is the cross that enables us to see most clearly everything in our lives. It is the cross of Jesus that tells us that though something evil is happening, God is in control. The most evil thing ever done on earth was crucifying Jesus, and yet it was according to the foreordained plan of God. It is clinging to the cross that we rest, that we worship, that actually makes prayer possible. And you know Jesus was on that cross because of an unanswered prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me. That prayer went unanswered so that he could give himself a sacrifice for you and make you clean for the presence of God. And he rose from the dead and he burst into the throne of grace. He burst open the doors for all who know Jesus are welcome there. It is now the throne of grace where we are promised to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need to not pray is to deny the gospel. We're going to sing a hymn in two seconds by John Newton. One of the lines is this. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. Let's pray. We muchly ask you, our Father, to make us a rejoicing, thanking, praying people, never, never letting go of the cross. In Jesus' name.